Good morning, everyone. I want to add my welcome to all of you. It's great to have the room full today, and I hope that that just continues. Uh, for those of you who are perturbed at our sermon text reading because it's not Transfiguration Sunday, it's not the Epiphany season, I know that bothers some of you. Uh, you know, I went to this text uh, thinking about the life of in town and my own life and that transfiguring process that God is doing and making all things new. And I was moved to that, and I just appreciated the song we just sang too about God making all things new. Um, the hymn writer is a guy named, uh, you see it there in your liturgy, Horatius Bonar. Um, and I've had the opportunity to preach in his pulpit um, a number of times. He was a minister in Edinburgh, Scotland, and a powerful preacher, powerful hymn writer, and his congregation continues to this day, very vibrant and lively and legacy of that, of that ministry and work. Uh, but even thinking about that uh, in my life and where we've been, my family, uh, that God is continually making all things new and transfiguring us for the next thing. And I've already made the point of the sermon. Uh, I didn't intend to do that. Sorry about that. Okay, well, we'll talk a little bit more about it. Let's pray. Loving Lord, a cacophony of voices ring in our ears each day, the loudest of which is our own. The world offers us unlimited remedies for what ails us. And yet you hold out your hands and invite us to know the Prince of Peace, the Everlasting Father, the one who created, the one who will bring it all to completion. Be merciful to us, Father. Drown out those voices and everything that would pull our hearts away from you so that we may hear the only voice that matters, that of your beloved Son. Amen. Well, um, this may be true for you, especially if you're a young person here. The Bible is one of those things that can be a little strange to read and difficult to understand. Now, that's true for adults. That's true if we're young as well. Um, we tend to listen to the parts of the Bible that are easiest for us to grab or the ones that sort of sound like our own voices. We tend to ignore places like Chronicles and Haggai and Habakkuk, and then when we do read them, we go, what in the world? We read the parts that really seem to matter, and we gloss over or ignore the rest. Now, it's easy to understand why this is the case. Everyone wants what's immediately practical or applicable to our lives. We're all looking for that. But the vast majority of the Bible isn't written like a how-to manual. Rather, it's full of strange, idiosyncratic storytelling, often without much commentary to help us along. I don't know if you noticed that in all of our readings this morning. And yet, it's God's Word. It's God's Word to us. Of all the things He could have said, this is what He chose to say. This is the way He wanted to encounter us, to get our attention, to reclaim us, 
to rectify the world. If you're going to set the world right, we would have done it a different way. But God gives us this word. What a strange world the Bible is. But if Christians believe anything, it's that if we listen with attentive ears and hearts, we will begin to hear God's voice to us in this text. And we'll get formed and transformed to be the humans that God has always designed us to be. But it will take us places we never expected to go. Those of you over the age of 40 will no doubt recall that cinematic masterpiece of the 1980s, The Karate Kid. What an artistic wonder it was. In a brief visual experience, we entered into the timeless battle of good and evil. The cheating coach, the arrogant bully, both dressed in black, of course, against the ostracized and misunderstood teacher who takes on the wimpy schoolboy who's seeking revenge on his peers and obviously also seeking the love of the pretty girl. They, of course, are dressed in white. Does my description give the movie too much credit? Anyway, you'll recall the most famous part of it, right? Mr. Miyagi must teach Daniel the art of karate. Daniel is anxious to fight, but before he can fight, he must learn to wax Mr. Miyagi's car. See, it was a cinematic masterpiece, right? You remember. Wax on, wax off. Daniel's perplexed. He signed up to fight, not to wax cars and floors. This isn't relevant to the task at hand. And of course, in a plot twist for the ages, we quickly learn why Mr. Miyagi is the master teacher. Waxing the car is exactly what Daniel needed. I cannot believe I just spent that much time talking about the Karate Kid. But see, our problem when we open the Bible or come to Sunday morning to listen to it is that we only want to hear what we want to hear or what we think is useful. Give me that formula that will help me with my anxiety about test taking or whatever. Give me something that will help me handle my disrespectful daughter or my incorrigible spouse. That's what the real God does. He's the one who fits me and my needs. And we read the Bible that way. Parents love the verse, children obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right to do. Pretty straightforward, right? Young people love the verse, parents don't provoke your children to anger by the way that you treat them. Plain and simple, these verses, aren't they? Immediate application. So we thumb through the pages of scripture looking for these handy tools, only to find bizarre stories that seemed to matter very little, like this one in the Gospel that we just read. With all the chaos in our modern world, it seems absurd to offer such a strange account as a remedy to what ails us. But, such is the strange world of the Bible, a silent, transfigured, ancient, Middle Eastern, Rabbi, 
hanging out with ghosts and confused apprentices is, believe it or not, the best news we've heard in a long time. Now here we are in the middle of Mark's Gospel. Not too much time will pass before Jesus begins wandering his way toward Jerusalem, the place where he will be put to death. And so knowing that day would arrive, Jesus took three of his disciples onto this high mountain. You may recall in the Bible that intense divine activity takes place on mountains. Moses received the law from God himself on the mountain. Jesus preached his most famous sermon on the mountain. The temple was built on a mount. Jesus was crucified at Mount Calvary. Many of the major events in redemption history took place on a mountain. So when Jesus takes these three to the top of the mountain, it tells us, it's a signal to us, that something extraordinary in redemptive history is about to take place. This is not something to overlook. And sure enough, the unimaginable happens. Moses and Elijah appear with Jesus and strike up a conversation with him. Can you imagine being a witness to this? The three of them start talking. They start having a discussion. Luke's gospel tell us, tells us that they spoke of Jesus' exodus from this world. Man, I'd love to unpack that for a while. But they talked about his exit from this world, which would happen in Jerusalem. I really wonder what they said, specifically. I mean, I'm not sure. We could speculate. And the biblical writers don't seem interested in telling us, so we won't think about it very long. But while these fishermen are standing there watching this incredible scene, the heavenly veil is pulled back for them. And Jesus is transfigured. That is, what He is and what He will become after His resurrection are briefly revealed in magnificent brightness. His clothes become dazzling white, and they're blinded by His appearance. Similar, it seems, to something that happened to one of His guests on the mountain that day, Moses himself. You may remember that. When Moses was in the presence of God and he returned to Israel, he had to wear a veil because the brightness was too much. Now the message is becoming more obvious. This man, this Jesus, is from God, but in a unique way. He pals around with people like Moses and Elijah. And now he has the same divine appearance that the prophet Daniel saw in his vision of the Son of Man. You can read about that in that Old Testament book. I mean, it must have been terrifying for Peter, James, and John. Peter doesn't know what to say. So he suggests building a monument. It's probably a better suggestion than I would have had. But Jesus had other ideas. And it was at that moment that a cloud overshadows them. Again, an image familiar to us if we've read the Bible. You may recall that a cloud was the presence of God with his people while they were wandering in the wilderness and waiting before they entered into the promised land. The cloud comes down to them and a voice peels out from the cloud. 
It's the Father Himself. This is my dearly loved Son. Listen to Him. Now does that sound familiar? It's happened before. At Jesus' baptism, the Father, the Father's voice sounded out and He said the same thing. He interrupted that event and on both of these occasions, the word that He gives to those present is, I really love this man, this Jesus. Pay attention to what He says. And this is the fundamental posture and activity of anyone who claims to be a follower of Jesus or a follower of God. Our ears must be carefully attuned to the voice of Jesus of Nazareth, the one whose very name is Word. And that's what a Christian is. The Christian is the one who is listening carefully to Jesus and all that that word listen means. Not just hearing, but taking in, living in, responding to. During a brief time period, I was part of a church, not in this state, that was uh, large, it was lively, it was organized, it was growing. They were expanding their footprint in the city on and on and on. It's one of those kinds of churches. One day, as I listened to a sermon from the founding pastor, it occurred to me that if you were to remove any reference to Jesus, the church would carry on as if nothing had happened. Jesus was incidental to the heart of what they were doing. He occasionally served as a good example on how to manage your life. But let's face it, lots of people are good examples to us on how we might manage our lives. But there was nothing critical or fundamental about the person of Jesus for that church. It was psychological health, it was behavioral modification that they were after. Some people achieve all of that with Jesus and others without Him. And as I listened to this, and this thought dawned on me about the reality of this church, having been embedded in it in a while, I was shocked. Isn't it remarkable how easy it is in the church to develop a strategy, create great leaders, refine a process, inspire a lot of people, and have very little use for Jesus. The Word. It should be instructive to us that twice the Father explodes onto the scene and says, Listen to my Son. Interestingly, what he does not say in this transfiguration scene, he does not say, these are my beloved children, Moses, Elijah, Jesus. Listen to them. Now, the omission of that plural pronoun would not have been lost on Peter, James, and John. Because an Israelite, uh, for an Israelite, one's identity is wrapped up in community, both in their present community and their ancestral community. They couldn't think of themselves and their relation to God 
without thinking of Moses and Elijah. And we could add to the list Abraham, Jacob, David. To be more explicit about it, their own personal spirituality, Peter, James, and John, was linked to these figures, Moses and Elijah. So that these larger-than-life Jewish ancestors would actually mediate spirituality, we could say God, to them, to the disciples. Moses' life and words stand in for Peter's life and words. Now we see this in the New Testament frequently, in the uh, Gospels in particular, but even in Paul, where people are claiming Abraham as their father, or a particular leader in 1 Corinthians, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, uh, I follow Christ, all of that kind of thing. They would appeal to Moses, they would appeal to David to justify their own righteousness and their own standing before God. And you know, when you think about it, why not? Because they were great, they were people of great faith. They did amazing miracles. Moses parted the Red Sea. We read about what Elijah did this morning. He struck the Jordan with his cloak, it parted, and he rode a chariot to heaven. Does it get any better than Elijah? But Jesus' response to this when he encountered this thinking was, hey, look, you better watch out. Just because you have this link with Abraham or Moses doesn't mean everything's okay with you and God. And we might cheer him on and say, yeah, that's right. Everybody's got to take personal responsibility. You can't rely on so-and-so. But maybe there is a cautionary word in this for us. There's a fine line between living in a community of discipleship where we're being formed by other believers and also shaping those around us and being formed into the image of those around us. There's a big difference between those two. And we can awful stump, awfully uh, quickly stumble into that. You see the difference? You know, it's very easy to allow a pastor or a system of doctrine or a mentor or various forms of church life to become in themselves the mediation of God or God to us. And we know we have allowed that to happen when the pastor or the mentor disappoints or hurts us and we all know they always do. Or our tradition gets upended, or some other crisis of faith, when it's practically impossible for us to distinguish our relationship to God from our relationship to that person, or that church, or whatever. I, I hope I'm making sense. We love those people around us who are giving us the Word of God, who are mentoring us, who are guiding us. But they cannot replace the presence of God in our lives. They cannot replace the presence of Christ or who Christ is in us. Our faith doesn't get mediated through that person. Our faith is mediated through the living Lord. And worship, preaching, 
pastors, community groups, conferences are to be windows to seeing and living in union with Jesus Christ. And all you have to do is look around the church world and listen to podcasts these days to know that we are fraught with personalities who continue to build empire and a customer base so much that people can't imagine being a faithful Christian apart from that person. What a disaster that is for the church. Listen to the Father's words. He did not say listen to them. He said listen to Him. Moses, Elijah, the church, a window to Christ. Isn't that strange? How frequently we are obscured by Moses and Elijah, so to speak. Now, you'd think that Jesus would take the time to explain all of this to his disciples there on the mountain. But interestingly, Mark doesn't record any words directly from Jesus while they're at that transfiguration event. Isn't that strange? The Father says, listen to him, and the Son stands there silently. This is weird. Shouldn't he speak up? And when Peter says, hey, let's build a tabernacle, shouldn't Jesus say, let me tell you what's going on here, Peter. Let me explain a few things. He doesn't. Mark records him saying something as he comes down the mountain, and it was really only to say, shut up about this event. Don't tell anybody about it. (laughs) There's an instruction here for us as well. And I think it gets to the heart of what it means to walk with God. Let me see if I can make sense. Jesus' silence forced the disciples to live in the transfiguring event rather than to look for an explanation for it. What does that mean? I don't know that I know entirely. But I know they had to learn to embody, to be surrounded by that transfiguration, to allow what happened to Jesus to then happen to them. To allow His life to become their life. And that's the Christian life. It's only as our lives are united with His and what has happened to Him that then we begin to understand to get a true picture of ourselves, of the world, and of God Himself. Christians have a term for this. For thousands of years, we've been calling it faith-seeking understanding. The transfiguring of Jesus isn't a story that happened back then that we just try to explain. It's a story that continues to happen in us as we're connected to the life of this man, Jesus. And that's the best news we could ever hear. Because what we thought really mattered for us, housing, comfort, a 401k, doesn't. Compared to being changed into the very glory of God. That magnificent view of Jesus of Nazareth on that mountain happens to you. When you listen, When you obey, when you follow Him with all your heart, 
It's that transfiguring that is ongoing now and will be completed one day. And God just does it out of His grace and incomprehensible love. Even Jesus was transfigured. He stood silently before His disciples and received the glory from His Father. That's amazing news for us and for the world. We're not in charge. Life isn't up to us. God is up to something far more dazzling and brighter than anything we could manufacture. What happened to Him is happening to us as we follow Him. Maybe John was recalling this incredible event on the mountain when he wrote in his first letter, Dear friends, we are already God's children. Okay? So a transfiguration has taken place, but He has not yet shown us what we, we will be like when Christ appears. But we do know that we will be like Him, for we will see Him as He really is. See? It's that transfiguration that's happening in us now and will be complete one day. I have a really good friend who understands this power of mystery. He grew up in the church, but as an adult he had very little use for the church. In fact, he took some measure of pride in the fact that he had risen above it intellectually, you know. You know, like when you do, when you become truly enlightened. Anyhow, when he and his wife had their children, she decided it was time to return to church, which is often the case for folks. He was an extremely reluctant participant. But he went, and along the way, he started to work through some of the intellectual hurdles of Christianity, and he even became active in the church, doing his part with the gifts that he had. But still, something wasn't quite right for my friend. And then God brought some things into his life that jolted him, forced him to take a long look, and most importantly, to examine his own heart. And he didn't know what to do about it. He was attending church, he was giving his time and money. What else is there? Somehow, he came across a brief prayer called the Jesus Prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's it. So he started getting up every morning, early in the morning, going outside or somewhere else very peaceful and standing there with outstretched hands, praying the Jesus Prayer over and over. That's the only thing he knew to do. And over time, something started happening. This simple, repeated prayer stirred up an obsession in him to listen to the Word and to consume everything he could of Christ, both in word and sacrament. His appetite for the life of God became voracious and it began spilling over into the lives of those around him, so much so that now this non-professional clergy is a spiritual guide and teacher for his church. And these days, I don't have a conversation with my friend without hearing some reference to Christ and the deeply transfiguring experience of listening to him and following him. And there's a peace and a love that oozes from my friend. Gone are the days of cynical arrogance and superiority that characterize him. And he said, what happened? 
What's the process? How do I get that in my life? Give me the formula. And the father says, listen to my son. Speak with him. Feed on him. Obey him. And his transfiguring life will begin to transfigure you. Quietly, slowly, graciously, God will do that work in us. And he will complete it when we see him.